Well, it's good to be gathering together on the first Sunday of the new year, is it not? In fact, I haven't seen you guys since last year. <laughs> haven't heard that one before, have you? Well, I want to begin with a question. As you flipped the calendar and changed it to a new year, I wonder what changes have you seen in your lifetime? Think of any? I thought of a bunch. I want to share with you three. First, some of you might remember this, dial-up internet to wireless internet. Anybody remember dial-up, show of hands? Yeah, I totally hated that stuff. Like, you remember how mad you used to get when you're trying to get on the internet and you can't get on, it's making some weird noise, like, you don't know what's going on, and you find out someone's on the phone and you can't use the internet? Glad those days are over. Secondly, remember uh, regular cell phones to smartphones? Anybody remember these things? I mean, they're like 15-pound dumbbells you carry around in your pocket. The pictures were blurry at best, and it took about five minutes to send a text message, right? Glad those days are over. Now we have the iPhone. Here's my favorite. Uh, VHS to DVD. Now, for some of you, you look at that thing, you're like, is that a black brick? No. You could actually play movies off that thing. And I used to get so mad when I would play, like, out of the collection of 100 Disney movies. Like, how do they keep coming up with Disney movies? I don't know. But Disney movies, and um, this is before Frozen for some of you. Let it go if you're mad, all right? Let it go. And um, used to get so mad where you go to play it, and you find out someone hadn't used the rewinder. Remember that? There's just a few. There's a million other things that we could talk about, things that have, we've seen change in our lifetimes. But a more serious question, when you think about this new year, what do you hope will change in your walk with God? Maybe to ask it another way, if you were to describe your walk with God last year with one word, what word would you choose? Flourishing, growing, declining, stagnant, or maybe non-existent. This morning we will be looking at in John's gospel what is known as the testimony of John the Baptist. And it is in this testimony of John the Baptist this morning that we will discover what I believe to be three steps to a vibrant, joy-filled life-giving walk with God. All in favor for that this morning? Three steps to a vibrant walk with God in the new year. And to find these steps, we begin in John chapter 1, what was read just a few moments ago, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, the Apostle John begins the testimony of John the Baptist by telling us that the Jews, most likely a ruling body of, uh, in Judaism, probably the Sanhedrin, come to John the Baptist seeking to find out who he really is. Now, this isn't all that surprising to those of you that are students of your Bible, for we know that in the ancient world, John the Baptist was the ancient Justin Bieber. Is it okay for me to say that in church? 
I mean, John the Baptist was a celebrity. He was popular. People were coming from all over the ancient Near East to, to hear his message of repentance. Many were being baptized by him, such that in uh, chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel, Matthew writes the following. He says, people went to him, John the Baptist, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. So those that are in this ruling body of Judaism hear about this guy named John, John the Baptist, how people are flocking to him from all over the place. So they send out a small cohort of guys, hey, go find out who John the Baptist is. So the Apostle John tells us, verse 19, these guys find John the Baptist, and they ask him a simple question, verse 19. Who are you? Who are you? Simple question. Now, now John could have answered this like any of us in a hundred different ways, right? You've probably been asked this question this week even. Who are you? He could have talked about his family, could have talked about his career, his accolades, his hobbies, or a plethora of other things. But, but notice what he says instead. Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Another translation would be, he confessed and confessed freely. And in other words, John was not the type of guy to beat around the bush. He cuts straight to the point. He doesn't hesitate or stutter. It's as if John replied, okay, you want to know who I am? Listen up, read my lips. I am not the Christ. Now, what's so interesting about this is when these Jewish leaders ask John who he is, he tells them who he is by first telling them who he's not. I am not the Christ. Why? Because John knows that a thought swimming around in the minds of these Jewish leaders is that John might actually be the Messiah. He might actually be the promised one, the one Israel has longed for. This, this might be it. Now put yourself in John's shoes. I mean, this is a great PR moment. Like, like, John, you can't mess this up. Like, your Twitter followers are going to double if you answer this right. I mean, he could have easily said, well, technically I'm not the Christ, but we are close. We're cousins. guess I'm practically like Messiah Jr., you know? But, but in a remarkable display of humility... John does not seize this moment or fall into the temptation to inflate his status before men, but rather, he comes right out and says, listen, I know you might think I'm the Savior. Let me set the record straight. I'm not, which leads us to our first step to a vibrant walk with God, which is this, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Want a vibrant walk with God this year? Humble yourself. God is clear in his word that he hates pride, but loves humility. Several passages we could read. There's two I want to point our attention to. Take, for instance, Isaiah 66, 2. 
This is the one to whom I will look. Fascinating. This big gathering of people. Who is God looking at this morning? Here is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Maybe a more popular, better known verse, James 4, 6. You know it? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the, say it, humble, humble. Whereas pride is what turns off the faucet of God's grace in your life, humility is what turns the faucet on full blast. In fact, humility looks good on everybody, but consequently, pride looks good on no one. What is humility, you ask? Here it is, one sentence. Humility is the act, something you do, the act of acknowledging who I am in light of who God is and living in light of that truth. Humility is the act of acknowledging who I am in light of who God is and living in light of that truth. So so why does John answer the Jewish leaders in the way that he did? Because he knew who God was, that he was sending a Savior into the world, and consequently, he knew who he was, not the Savior. Humility, by definition, requires you seeing God for who he is and declaring as a result, I'm not him. And, And brothers and sisters, humility comes natural to no one. One's naturally good at humility. Mark it down. The vibrancy of your walk with God will never outpace your humility. Ever. If you're going into this year and you think you're just the center of the universe, God's not going to pour out much grace in your life. But if you walk every day clothed in the beautiful garment of humility and you cry out every morning, afternoon, and evening in your heart like the man who came before Jesus who said, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner, God pours out an infinite amount of grace into your life. My friends, God is rich in grace and he's a big spender. But he only spends it on humble people. You say, well, Brad, how do I know if I'm humble? Three confessions a humble person makes. Every humble person makes these three confessions all at one time, maybe in different varieties, but all humble people make three confessions. You ready? Three confessions of a humble people. First, I can't be everywhere at once. I can't be everywhere at once. Knowing they aren't God, humble people know they can't be everywhere at once. True or false? It's possible to be with people and not with people. Know what I'm talking about? Get home after a long day of work. You're sitting at the table with your family, having dinner. You're with your family, but all you're thinking about is your to-do list and you're checking your email. Moms, you know what I'm talking about. Kids have been running crazy around the house for the 800th consecutive day. And you're tired, you're burned out, you're exhausted, and little Johnny made the ugliest craft, but you have to lie to him 
and ask for forgiveness later. That's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. He comes to you, Mommy, look what I made. And you don't look at him because you're too busy scrolling through your iPhone, checking on the latest news, looking through your news feed, trying to be everywhere at once. And listen, all of us are tempted to believe that we can be multiple places at once. And friends, one of the surest ways that you can humble yourself is by telling yourself this truth. When I'm there, be there. When I'm there, be there. If I'm with the family at the table, be with the family at the table. With my kids, be with your kids. If you're with your friends, be with your friends. When I'm there, be there. So rather you're with your spouse, your kids, or your friends, confess that you can't be everywhere at once and be present with the people in front of you. Three confessions of a humble person. First, I can't be everywhere at once. Second, I can't know it all. I can't know it all. Perhaps the reason why so many of us are chained to Facebook, to Snapchat, to Instagram, to Twitter, to Fox News, to CNN, to ESPN, and for those of you that are just sick, HGTV, is because we believe that we can and must know everything. Got to know it all. I got to know what my friends are doing at any given time. I got to know what's happening on the other side of the world at any given time. I got to know where the stock market is at at any given time. I have to know how Joanna Gaines is decorating her house at any given time. But brothers and sisters, isn't that exhausting? Listen, take a breath and rest in the fact that you don't have to know it all because you have a God who already does. So let me just encourage you this year, take some time away from media, step away from a screen, and take a walk through nature and remind yourself, God makes all these trees to grow, not me. Therefore, I don't have to know it all, and brother and sister, you can't. So three confessions of a humble person. First, I can't be everywhere at once. Second, I can't know it all. Third, I can't fix it all. Got any fixers in the church today? Can't fix it all. Listen, one of the ways that God humbles us is by giving us things we can't fix. Oh, gosh. One of the most humbling things for me is when I'm at home and Clarissa comes home and she comes up to me and I can tell there's an issue and she says, honey, my car's making a weird noise. Can you go look at it? And my answer every time is no. Like, the only thing I know how to look at in your car is if you have enough gas. Other than that, I'm up a creek. Right? I just have to sit back in those moments and confess, I can't fix it all. And can I tell you, friends, the people here today that need to hear this the most are parents. Mom and dad, you can't fix it all. Listen, you have to remember you can't make all the right choices for your kids. That's not how God designed parenting to work. You know how God designed parenting to work? To humble you. To, to put you on your face before God every day and cry out this, God, I have no power to fix little Johnny. 
I can't change him. He won't listen. Even when he acts like he's listening, I don't think he's listening. But here's what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to lead by example. I'm going to keep being faithful and teach me your ways. But Lord, at the end of the day, you have to change his heart. That's what parenting leads you to every single time. So let me give you a challenge this year. Set aside five minutes every day to plead with God for your kids. Same time every day, five minutes. Maybe get your spouse on that agenda. Maybe get a friend or a family member and say, hey, five minutes at noon, we're gonna plead for Johnny's heart. And for those five minutes, you just plead, Lord, today was a tough day, but I trust you. You're faithful. Would you move in his heart? Would you open up his eyes of unbelief to believe the gospel for the first time? Friend, what would God do if you would commit to pray for your kids every day for five minutes for 365 days? What grace might he pour out in your children's lives? And every day that you pray, let it serve as a reminder, a post-it note to your soul that you can't fix it all. And aren't you glad that you can't? Because if you could, you would be God. And my friend, you make a terrible God. So, you want a vibrant walk with God this year? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Like John the Baptist who humbly proclaimed, I am not the Christ. Continue in verse 21. So, after John confessing, I'm not the Christ, they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, after denying the question, are you the Messiah, the Jews continue to ask John questions. Notice the first one. Are you Elijah? I mean, after all, many Jews believed that Elijah would return from heaven in the flesh as a forerunner to the Messiah. But John simply says, I am not. So they ask, are you the prophet? After all, Deuteronomy 18 prophesied that a great prophet would one day come in the last days. But John answers with an emphatic no. Verse 22, so they said to him, well then, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Because you imagine being this group of men. You just asked John about three to four questions And in your mind, he's not answering them correctly. So surely frustrated, they finally say, listen, dude, we got to go back and answer to some people, who in the world are you? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I love that. It's as if John says, okay, you want to know who I am? You really want to know who I am? And then he quotes Isaiah 40 and says, I'm a voice. I'm a voice proclaiming the truth of the word of God. And it is here that we find the second step to a vibrant walk with God, which is this, live on mission. First, humble yourself. Second, live on mission. It's clear here, verse 23, that John viewed his entire life as a voice that prepared others for the coming of Jesus, such that when he's asked for the second time, who are you, he just simply says, I'm a voice. You know, I wonder, if we were to step back in time, 
and be a fly on the wall everywhere John the Baptist went. I wonder what we would see. I think we would find a man who lived his day-to-day life, no doubt, in such a way that he viewed every person he saw, every circumstance he was in, and every second that ticked off the clock as an opportunity to tell others about Jesus. So let me ask you, Christian, is that how you view your life? Do you view your life as a voice? Do you view every day as a new opportunity to testify to the truth and grace of Jesus? Maybe more specifically, brother and sister in the workplace, do do you view your workplace as just a means to a paycheck or as a mission field God has placed you in? Moms, do you view your children as burdens and interruptions or as little disciples you can help learn about Jesus? High school student, got any of those in here? Okay, like four? (laughs) Like a 40-year-old guy just raised his hand? (laughs) Glad you guys are here. High school student, listen, do you view your classmates as just casual acquaintances or as divine opportunities to influence them for Jesus? How do you view them? So let me give you a simple challenge. Resolve to live on mission this year by sharing the truth and grace of Jesus with one person every week. One person every week. Just resolve. Write it down. Lord, this this year, I'm going to live on mission. I'm going to tell one person every week about the truth of Jesus. See, whereas John had a ministry of preparation, we have a ministry of proclamation. We're called to tell and herald the truth of God to other peoples. And dear friends, you know what I found in my own life? When I start praying for open doors, and I start looking for open doors, you know what I find? Open doors. God's faithful to give them to me every time. And think of how many people we all in this room interact with on a day-to-day basis. Hundreds, maybe even thousands. The problem is not that we don't have enough people to share Jesus to. The problem is that we're unwilling. And so resolve this year to live on mission. And my friend, can say it from experience that when you make the decision and you begin to share the truth about Jesus with other people, your faith grows and grows and grows. So want to have a vibrant walk with God this year? Live on mission by proclaiming the truth of Jesus. Amen. Verse 24. Well, the Pharisees want to join the party. That's always fun. And uh, the Pharisees jump in and uh, want to ask him some questions. Verse 25. They've been silent long enough. And uh, the Pharisees in this text are kind of like that friend that you're like, hey, we're going to go have a conversation with a buddy, confront him about some things, but you just need to be quiet and uh, not say anything. And then you get in like five minutes later, and they're, blah, you know, you're like, what are you doing? Pharisees jump in here, just like that, verse 25. Why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Now, now most, you have to understand backstory. Most people in the first century viewed baptism as just a cleansing, a purification method, It was very common in the ancient world. 
So after John denies being Christ, Elijah, and the prophet, these, these men ask John a logical question. They say, on what authority do you have to baptize people? If you're none of these people, then on what authority do you have to baptize people? Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In other words, John is saying, my baptism with water is only a sign of what he, who's actually with us now, and you don't know him, by the way, it's only a sign of what he will one day do when he comes. Who is this he John is referring to? Verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, so transitioning, flipping the page, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, so here he is, he's explaining, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So John says, here he is. It's the one I was telling you about. This is the one who I said was coming. But notice he keeps going by proving how he knows he's the Messiah. Verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then he summarizes everything he just said. Verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now there's a lot here. Maybe to break it down a little easier. Verse 26, John says, there is one coming. And in verses 29 to 34, he says who this one is by giving perhaps the best one-sentence summary of the work of Jesus Christ. Look with me. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament law, God commanded that repeated animal sacrifices be made as restitution for sin. So, the way it would work is sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, again and again and again and again. But in Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesied that one day Jesus would be like, quote, a lamb led to the slaughter. A lamb for the sins of the people. So when John sees Jesus, he blurts out, behold the lamb of God. There's the lamb. And this lamb is the sacrifice that the writer of Hebrews would say once for all. For all sin, for all time. But we must ask an all-important question. What does it mean 
that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. What's it mean? Which leads us to our last and most important step to a vibrant walk with God, which is this. Rest in the gospel. Rest in the gospel. A couple years ago, a friend of mine decided to build a, a back deck on the back of his house with a jacuzzi. So I was like, dude, I'm moving in with you, whether you like it or not. So he was having this built. The land was getting excavated, mud all over the place. And sadly, the supplies to build the deck couldn't come in for another week. So for a whole week, the backyard was an absolute disaster, right? Well, my friend had a four-year-old son at the time. They're fun, uh, except when you have a ton of mud in the backyard and they love playing outside. So his son would, without fail, every day, even though he was told, don't go outside and play in the mud, would find himself in the mud. And my friend told me the funniest thing, cutest thing ever. His son, after telling him, okay, now, now Johnny, don't go play in the mud. Johnny would go swing, play in the mud. He'd then come inside to mom and dad, muddy shirt and all, and would come up to my friend and say, Dad, will this come out? <laughs> Every single day. Will this come out? And here's the thing. Some of you are still asking that very question today. I'm not talking about stain of mud on a shirt. I'm talking about the stain of sin on a life. And you know there's been some things that you've seen over your lifetime, some things that you've done, consequently some things you haven't done, perhaps weeks, months, years of past regret, and all of it is like a blot on your life. And as a result, you carry around this scarlet letter that is unrelenting in your soul. And if you're honest, maybe you're, even, you're here today and you, you hear this song, In Christ Alone, and you sing, no guilt in life, but there's something inside of you that's asking this question, will this come out? And as a result, your soul is plagued with shame. And my friend, can I just tell you, there is no better news in the world for you to hear this morning than this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This means that when you, when you place your faith in Jesus, and rest in what he has done in your behalf. Listen, this is going to be a great spot for an amen, by the way. You guys ready? When you place your faith in Jesus and what he's done on your behalf, every single stain of sin on your life is washed out by the blood of Jesus. Every single one. And as a result, my friend, can I just remind you, shame has no residence in the life of a believer. None. Zilch, zero, nada. 
Do you remember in Romans 8, Paul writes about this when he says, opens up the greatest chapter in the Bible and says, there is therefore now no what? Condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Here's the truth. Sin cannot speak shame over your life when it's drowning in the blood of Jesus. It can. Listen. If you want to have a vibrant walk with God this year, it won't come by doing more for God, but by resting more in God. Any doers in the house this morning? Those of us who are doers, when you hear vibrant walk with God, you're like, yeah, pick up a shovel, right? I'm going to work for God hard this year. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. And those things are great. The gospel compels obedience. But my friend, if you're not resting in the gospel, it's all in vain. If you're doing these things because you think, if I read my Bible this year, God's going to be super happy with me. Oh, friend, you don't, you don't understand the gospel. Because in the gospel, we find that Jesus' righteousness is given to us. We don't earn it. It is ours. And it is that righteousness that compels us to obey him. Amen? So my friend, if you're here today and you feel like God could never receive you after all you've done, let let me remind you that because of the death of Jesus, he speaks the words of Isaiah 43 over your life. Verse 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and then listen to this, and remember your sins no more. That's incredible. And remember your sins no more. You know what this means? The sin you cannot forget, God does not remember. The sin you cannot forget, God does not remember. The sin that plagues your mind when you go to sleep at night and you wonder, will I ever forget this? God looks at you and his son and says, I already have. And here's the thing, we need to remind ourselves of this every day, do we not? Martin Luther, who I just love for his humor, was once asked by one of his parishioners why he preached the gospel week after week. And he looked the man in the eye and said, because you forget it week after week. (laughs) And isn't that true of us all? That we, we don't, listen friends, you don't need this truth just today, you need it Monday morning. You need it Tuesday afternoon, you need it Wednesday night, you need it the rest of the week. So preach the gospel to your souls. Rest in the gospel by preaching this good news to yourself this entire year, knowing that Jesus has washed your stain of sin with his own blood. All the while, with one eye towards heaven, longing for the day when we will stand with the rest of the saints and cry out, behold the Lamb of God who took away my sin. I hope you long for that day. But until then, let's seek to have a vibrant walk with God this year. Let's humble ourselves, reminding ourselves every day, I am not the Savior. Let's live on mission, proclaiming the truth and grace of Jesus to other people. And oh, dear friend, let's rest in the gospel together, reveling in the love of God.
Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we're so thankful that these things are true. We're so thankful that in Jesus we have a great high priest who intercedes on our behalf even now. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us much grace as we embark on this new journey called 2019, which will be filled with good things and surely trials. Give us grace for all these things and joy knowing that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Grant us grace now to remember it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.